Well, this evening you will notice we are continuing with chapter 3, looking this evening at verses 6 through 10. And once again, we'll begin with a question about structure. I have sectioned this portion of the chapter between verses 6 and 10. And so read my mind. How would we determine that this is, in fact, a distinct or new rhetorical unit? Very good. Who is the speaker? Andy? It appears to be the Lord. How do you know? He's the only one that can do such things, isn't he? Fine. Anything else? You're right. There is a new speaker, which is an indication of a new unit. How do you know it's the Lord speaking? Verse 7 says, they'll revere him. Something easier than that. What did we point out was the, this, one of the distinctions last week that characterized verses 1 to 5? Pronoun. The pronoun. What pronoun in verses 1 to 5? I. I. Her. Not in 1 to 5. Yes, Randy's correct. Her or she, the third person pronoun, which indicates what speaker? Marge? That's the prophet Zephaniah. So what tells us that we have a different speaker here? Go ahead, Marge. The I pronoun. The I pronoun. Who's the I speaker? The I speaker is the Lord. All right, so we have... Changed pronouns between verse 5 and 6, from the third person singular to the first person singular. That indicates a change in speaker from the prophet, verses 1 to 5, to the Lord, verses 6 through 10. And you will notice that that first person, personal pronoun, <clears throat> both nominative and possessive, or genitive, I and my, dominates this section, verses 6 through 10. All right, now there's something else that uh, ties this section together and indicates that it is a rhetorical section in and of itself. What is the object of God's speech here? The nations. In fact, you see that in verse 6. Do you see the word nations in any other verse? You see it in verse 8. Very good. All right. We'll come back to that. And where do you end in verse 10? And Ethiopia is a what? It is a nation. All right, so we have clues throughout this section that God is addressing the nations, even to distant Ethiopia. 
He begins with the nations in verse 6, and he ends with one of the nations in verse 10, namely Ethiopia, or actually in the Hebrew, Cush. All right, now that is what we're after in the little blank lines of verse 6 and 8. The word nations, brackets, that particular subunit of this section. But in between, in verse 7, the pronoun changes. It changes to you and her. Who are the object of the you and her? All right, let's hold that just for a moment. But you'll notice that the word nations does not appear again in verse 7. Verse 7 seems to be somewhat different. And one of the ways we note that is we pick up a comparison between verse 6 and verse 7. There is a phrase or words that are used in verse 6. They're also used in verse 7. Not peoples. I think I heard it. Cut off. Cut off. That's it. All right, now, notice in verse 6 how that word is used or how that phrase is used. Then notice how in verse 7 that phrase is used. And what do you see? Very good. It's an antithesis. It's a negation. Okay. In the one case, he will cut off. And he, in fact, says who he will cut off. He will cut off the nations. In verse 7, he says who he will not cut off. He will not, not cut off her dwelling. All right. Now, we have an antithesis, a positive as over against the negative, he actually used the negative particle there in verse 7. So, who's he talking about in verse 7? Talking about the nations in verse 6, and he's talking about the nations again in verse 9. He's going to cut them off in verse 6. He's going to devour them by his indignation in verse 8. What's he doing Who's he addressing in verse 7? Israel. Not Israel. We're not dealing with Israel anymore. Israel is long ago captive. Okay? Yes. It's the nation of Judah. It's the Jews. <laughs> it's not the nations. <laughs> You're 100 years off, Randy. <laughs> That, that doesn't even get you two points in horseshoes. It's too far off of the, of the post. All right. Not even one point in horseshoes. Okay. The object then in verse 7 is the opposite of the nations who are the object in verses 6, 8, 9, and 10. This is quite an interesting sandwich, and that's the reason I've diagrammed it on your handout as a sandwich. 
He sandwiches the nations around Judah, her dwelling in Jerusalem. Now, we'll come back to that in a minute to elaborate upon why there's an exception there, why there's this antithesis. But if you were going to place a label over the theme of these verses, 6 through 8 or 6 and 8, what would you say is happening to the nations? What's it mean to cut them off? Judgment. Judgment. Any other language? Destruction. Destruction. Condemnation. All right, so this is the judgment of the nations. It's not the first time in Zephaniah we've read about this, but that's the major theme returning here in chapter 3, that he is going to judge the nations. Now, as you skim verses 9 to 10, what's the theme that you would place over those two verses? Talking about the nations still, correct? Calls them the peoples here. Gathered together. Gathered together. Gathered together. How? In what kind of condition? Are they under judgment in these two verses? They are coming in uh, the blessedness of calling on the name of the Lord. They're even called his suppliants, bringing his offerings, having purified lips, being gathered from a dispersion or a scattering. All right, so the theme here is a people purified, cleansed, redeemed, coming to the name, invoking the name of the Lord. We therefore, in verses 6 and 8, have the judgment and condemnation, destruction of the nations. In verses 9 and 10, we have the gathering, purifying, cleansing, and redeeming of the nations. This section, verses 6 to 10, carries both themes, okay? Judgment and salvation. Now, placing it in the larger context of the entire book, we have said previously that the whole book of Zephaniah can be described between two bookends. The first bookend, the front end of the book, is the Dies Irae. Now, that's a Latin phrase, which means what? Anyone? Day of wrath. Now, that is especially true in chapter 1, verses 15 and following. In fact, that's exactly what your English translation says. If you turn back to verse 15 of chapter 1, a day of wrath is that day. Dies irae, dies ilia in the Latin. All right, so this book is about the day of God's wrath. It is his wrath directed against Judah and Jerusalem, and it is his wrath directed against the nations and peoples of the earth. But the second bookend of this uh, pr- prophecy is a different day. Does anyone remember what we said the other bookend was? Day of 
It's also a day of grace. How do we say that in Latin? Dies gratia. Yes, dies gratia. G-R-A-T-I-A-E. Dies gratia. A day of grace. So dies irae means day of wrath. Dies gratia means day of wrath. And that is especially true beginning in chapter 3, perhaps even at this ninth verse of our section tonight. In other words, Zephaniah 3, 9 through the end of the book, verse 20, is the dies gratiae, which balances, which is the other bookend to this marvelous prophecy, the other side of dies irae. So the book moves between wrath and grace. It moves between judgment and salvation. It moves between God pouring out his wrath upon his people and the nations, God pouring out his saving mercy upon his people and the nations. From verse 9 to the end, we are in the atmosphere of God's wonderful, magnificent, and all-sufficient mercy and redeeming grace. And as we move through those final sections, we will see how he uses the objects and the imagery of the time of Zephaniah to expand and magnify that marvelous grace for the sake of his people, the remnant of Judah, Jerusalem, and for the sake of of those whom he redeems out of the nations, peoples of the earth. All right, now, as we think about verse 8, and notice the language there, let's turn back to chapter 1, verse 18, and flip back and forth as you read the two verses, and see if there's anything that you notice which is symmetrical, or similar between 3.8 and 1.18. To assume all the inhabitants of the earth. That is true. Okay. Something else there. Is angry? Good. Particularly, what kind of intensity of his anger? Verse, burning. Burning. Mm. There's a phrase there that's almost exactly alike. The fire of his zeal or jealousy. Yes, that clause in 118 is the fire of his, and in 3.8, the fire of my. It's almost exactly alike, except for the pronoun in the Hebrew, it's almost exactly alike. All right, so we have a symmetrical phrase in 1.18 and in 3.8. Why? Why does he use the exact same Hebrew phrase, with the exception of the pronoun, why does he use it in 118? Why does he repeat it 
in 3.8. I don't know, but is in between it, is that talking about what's going to happen to the nations being judged? There is there's some truth in that, but there's some other function that it has. What is being... What is, what is the object of the judgment in 1, 14 to 18? Judah. 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 Judah and Jerusalem. What's the object of judgment in 3, 8? The nations. Different object, isn't it? So why does he use the same phrase? No. Same thing's going to happen to both. Same thing's going to happen to both, correct? And where does the phrase occur? It occurs at the end of the oracle of judgment in both cases. In other words, in verse 18 of chapter 1, he ends his prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem and Judah. The judgment against the people of God is closed with that phrase, the fire of my zeal. Likewise, in chapter 3, verse 8, after he closes his oracle of judgment against the nations, in verses 6 and 8, he ends it with that very same clause, the fire of my zeal. That clause, then, is a closure device. It closes the judgment scenario, the judgment paradigm. It marks an end to the oracle of destruction. In, verses, uh, in chapter 1, verses 14 to 18, it ends the poetry of judgment against Judah and Jerusalem and Kol Haaretz, all the earth. In chapter 3, verse 8, it ends the oracle of judgment against the nations and against Judah and Jerusalem, verses 1 to 5, and Kol Haaretz, all the earth. In other words, it is a marker, it is a delimiter, it is a sign that Zephaniah, through the oracle of God, has closed the word of God's judgment against both the nation of Judah, and the nations of the world. It closes that phase of the prophetic oracle. All right, now to verse 6 in some detail. What nations? What nations are in view here? What nations does God have in view for the sake of Zephaniah's horizon? How do you know? And what are they? It says that somewhere earlier. It says that somewhere earlier. Philistines and the ones on the north. north. Now, 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 wait a minute. Now, wait a minute. You're doing so very well, we want to go slowly so we can pick up from your wisdom. You, you did remember. I'm, I'm proud of you, man. So, you mentioned one nation, which was? Philistines. The Philistines, okay? And where do you find that in the text? 
I don't remember the exact text. I just remember it was there. Okay. When we look back at chapter 2, verse 4 and 5, he's describing what direction? West. West, which is the Cisjordanian side of the Jordan River. Okay. He begins with the Cisjordan with the Philistines. Okay. Then he moves to what? Which is east, east or Cisjordan Philistine? Transjordan Moab and Adam. Yes, okay. So west to east, Cisjordan to Transjordan. Okay, then he moves where? South. South to where? Good, Art. Ethiopia or in Hebrew? He just mentioned. Kush. Kush. Very good. All right. He goes to the south and then he goes where? North to? And first of all, verse 13. Assyria first and then verse 15. March. The name doesn't appear, but we discussed that. What city in verse 15? Jerusalem? No, 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 you were right the first time. Nineveh? Nineveh, yes, okay. So he, but he goes to Assyria first. He mentions Assyria first as a northern direction in verse 13, and then in verse 15 he specifies the capital of Assyria, which is Nineveh. All right, so... These are the nations in view. The nation states around Judah and the nation states which harassed Judah, particularly Assyria and its capital, Nineveh. Mary? Beyond that, is it possible that he is just being all-inclusive, kind of like a marisma where he's doing east, west, north, south? It, it's not it's not a technical marismus, but nonetheless he is being comprehensive about the four points of the compass. And so in that way he's talking about all the unbelieving nations. Correct. Yes. It's it's comprehensive in terms of west, north west, east, north and south. South and north. Yes, that's fine. There is a mirror relationship here. That is a reflection of the one and the other, and vice versa. Yes. Good observation. Okay, so we have from the context of the book nations which can be identified specifically. God has said that he is going to judge these kingdoms. So uh, when we look at verse 8, we know some of the details about who the Lord has in mind. Now, in that sixth verse, he talks about these corner towers. It's not the first time he's talked about them. If you turn back to verse 16 of chapter 1, you'll notice that he also uses that word in verse 16. 
Now, we want to ask whose corner towers? And before we answer that one, what is a corner tower? It's a bulwark. How do you how do you imagine it? How do you see it in your mind? A corner tower. Corner tower where? The light angle when two walls meet. Very good. Where is it? Middle, bottom, top? Where is it, Abigail? Um, top, it would be on the top. Why is it on the top? So they can shoot arrows. So they can shoot arrows. So they can shoot arrows. What else? Why else would you want to be on the corner tower way up high? Protect. You're kind of out of range. I've got Abigail working for the uh, CIA right now. <laughs> it's harder to get an arrow up to a point higher than itself. Yeah, so you could see what's coming, couldn't you? All right, so these are corner towers which are high up, but they're at the 90-degree angle of the walls because that strengthens them. They're the strongest towers on the wall. They're reinforced from both sides. So they're also on the angles of the various uh, directions of the compass. So, in verse 16 of chapter 1, whose corner towers are we talking about? Where are these corner towers located? Jerusalem. In Jerusalem. In chapter 3, verse 6, where are these corner towers? These are in the nations. Once again, notice the interplay. In the first chapter, they are the corner towers of Jerusalem. Now, here, it is the corner tower of the bulwarks or the fortress walls of the kingdoms of the world or the cities of the kingdoms of the world. Both cases, those corner towers are going to be of no avail. Those corner towers are going to be leveled. They are going to be destroyed. And in verse 6 of chapter 3, God says he's going to make the streets of those nations desolate. What did he say he was going to do to Nineveh up in verse 15 of chapter 2? Yes, Nineveh is going to become a desolation. Here in verse 6, he's going to make the streets of the nations a desolation. One of those streets is going to be the streets of Nineveh in chapter 2, verse 15. Where else does he talk about desolation? Look at verse 9 of chapter 2. Moab and Ammon are going to be like Sodom and Gomorrah because they are going to become a perpetual desolation. And finally... In verse 4 of chapter 2. Ascalon. Ascalon is going to be a desolation. <clears throat> Where's Ascalon? Uh, okay. It's Philistia. It's one of the five Philistian pentapolis cities. Only There are only four there because... Gath was destroyed before Josiah's era. All right, so 
as he has already indicated in specific instances with respect to Ashkelon, Sodom and Gomorrah, Moab and Ammon, and Nineveh, as well as Assyria, he's going to make a desolation of the streets of the nations. Now, in verse 7, we've already pointed out that the you-her refers to Jerusalem, Judah. And in this seventh verse, we also have this question about the translation of the word instruction as it appears in the New American Standard. Do you remember our discussion about that last week when we take, took a look at verse 2 of this third chapter? Correction. correction, yes, correction or chastisement. Okay, so it would be better to be translated correction because it is the exact same Hebrew word here in verse 7 that was used in verse 2 above. Accept correction which, of course, is chastisement. It is not condign punishment, as we pointed out last week, and would be more appropriate as being directed against Judah and Jerusalem than the heathen or pagan nations. However, there is corruption in the deeds or the works of the object of verse 7. There is corruption in the works of Judah and Jerusalem. And these are evil deeds, corrupt deeds. What then is the standard by which their deeds would be weighed as corrupt or evil? What standard would be brought to bear against those who are being classified as doers of corrupt works. It would be God's justice in what verse? Verse 5. Very good. Exactly right. And that is addressed to Judah and Jerusalem, as we noted last week. Verses 1 to 5 are directed to the city of God and to the nation of the people of God. So here, that standard of measuring corruption, of measuring wickedness, is the standard of God's righteous judgment. All right, now you turn over to verse 11 for a moment of this third chapter. You'll see that word deeds again. How is it being used here? In verse 11... No shame. That's a reverse paradigm. That's the very opposite of what's occurring in verse 7, isn't it? The corruption of their deeds is going to be brought to their attention, measured against the justice of God. But here, in verse 11, they're going to feel no shame for those evil deeds, for those corrupt deeds. How or why? Because in that 11th verse, notice, God says he will remove them. From their midst. All right, so that's a redemptive paradigm. That's a saving grace paradigm, which also informs what is happening with the deeds, even in verse 7. Yes, they are evil and corrupt. Yes, they are contrary to the righteousness of God, and yet God will not cut her off for them, 
because, as verse 11 of this very same chapter projects, he's going to remove them. Whether or not he's going to remove the evil of the nations remains to be seen. But here, we're supporting the fact that verse 7 is an antithetical part of this three-verse section 6, 7, and 8. It stands in opposition to what God is going to do to the nations. He is not going to do that to, uh, to Judah and Jerusalem. He is going to, they, they are going to revere him. They are not going to be cut off. They are, uh, <clears throat> they are not going to pay for their evil deeds, as verse 11 indicates. All right, so uh, there is a, uh, a, a opposite. My point here is that there's an opposite uh, paradigm in verse 7 as compared to verses 6 and 8. Now, another thing is that word revere. What's revere mean? To hold in esteem. Very good. To honor. To fear. To fear in the same sense of to give reverence to. When we fear the Lord, we give reverence to him. We honor him. We hold him in great esteem. So this is the kind of language that once again is addressed to a people who are being changed, a people who are altered, a people who are no longer being corrupted by their evil deeds, even though once upon a time they were. They were eager to be corrupted in all their evil deeds. But he will not cut them off in due time. All right, now... That brings us to verse 8, which has a quite interesting form in the Hebrew. And I've attempted to repeat that form in a way that you can understand it. You'll notice I've used a series of hyphenated words which actually are only one word in the actual Hebrew text. So there are nine of those Hebrew words at the opening of this eighth verse, and you see them lined out and counted out uh, on that uh, first line. And then there are three infinitive clauses, and then nine more Hebrew words, which you see lined out and counted out, on the in the second uh, parallel line of that eighth verse. All right, now what's an infinitive clause? Abigail, do you know what an infinitive is? Something that's infinite. I, something that's infinite. No, this is a grammatical term. What's an infinitive, Randy? It's the form of the verb, like to be. To be is an infinitive. Yes, it's to plus the verb. That's an infinitive. So where do you see the infinitives in verse 8? You actually see three of them. To gather, to assemble, to pour out. 
He sandwiches those three infinitives between the nine-verse declaration. Now, those duplicate nine-verse declarations are a declaration of God's wrath. The Lord is going to rise to the prey in the first line. In the last nine-word line, his anger is going to burn and his zeal is going to devour. Those are nine-word lines of God's approaching wrath. In between those two nine-word lines, which are a framing device, in between he brackets the objects of his wrath. Okay, what are they? They are the nations. They are the kingdoms. And then he uses an infinitive to describe how he's going to consume them. He's going to pour out his indignation upon them. All right, this is a stylized parallel or symmetrical form in this eighth verse, which focuses you upon what has been sandwiched between the two nine-word lines of symmetrical embellishment of God's fury and his wrath. I am going to be angry. I am going to burn in my zeal for this purpose, to gather the nations, to assemble the kingdoms, and to pour out my indignation upon them. Framed between... The wrath language is the object of that wrath and the manner of its effusion, the manner of its profusion. We notice once again the artistry of Zephaniah. He does this in perfect symmetry. He does it in order to drive the attention of God's wrath to the recipients thereof, to the nations kingdoms of the earth, and to the outpouring of his just and holy indignation. All right, we've already talked a little bit about that closure device in chapter 1, verses 14 to 18, fire of his zeal. The judgment on Judah and Jerusalem is closed by that phrase. Then here in chapter 3, verse 8, this section deals with with the, ju- the fire of my zeal, which closes this section of judgment upon the nations or the Gentiles. We're over to judgment. The judgment material of Zephaniah is past. We have probably been slightly wearied by all this wrath and indignation. Nonetheless, It is a reality of his just and righteous anger. But here it ends. In verse 8 of chapter 3, we will look back upon judgment. We will look back upon the outpouring of God's wrath. In one sense, it is finished in the the prophet's prophetic vision. And we turn the corner. We turn the page. We get to the other bookend of this book. We come to the day of God's marvelous grace 
and redeeming mercy, beginning with verse 9. That brings us to a point at which we can pause, and so we'll take our break and we'll return looking at verses 9 and 10. As we turn our attention back to verse 9, and we notice the phrase that inaugurates this verse, the phrase, for then, and I'm going to ask you, where does this reappear? Very good. In the middle of verse 11, then I will remove from your midst the proud and arrogant. All right, now, the significance of that repetition or the significance of this phrase uh, here means that the blessing to the nations, I will give them purified lips, is going to be mirrored in the blessing to Judah and Jerusalem. I will remove the proud and exalting, and you will never again be haughty or lifted up in verse 11. We're dealing here then with a series of mirror or reverse paradigms, reverse images. In the broad picture, the reversal of wrath with grace. In the narrow picture, the reversal of judgment upon Judah and judgment upon the nations with redemption and release. Now, the next word in this ninth verse is the word lips, which you'll notice I have uh, indicated in the Hebrew, it's pronounced shapeh, shapeh. Sape, I should say. Now, this is an interesting word. It can also mean tongues. It can also mean language. It has a range of meaning. So we want to keep that word and that nuance in the back of our minds as we go on to look at other phrases uh, in this in this verse. Now they're going to call on the name of the Lord, which is also a duplication of verse 11 in chapter 2. I'm sorry, verse, uh, verse yes, verse uh, chapter 2, verse 11. Namely, that the nations are going to bow down to him. And uh, depart from the gods of the earth. The opposite of calling on the name of the Lord is what Nineveh did in verse 15 of chapter 2. 
she deified herself. She used the I am arrogance. Uh, there is none beside me, which is similar uh, to that expression in the book of Isaiah, as we pointed out when we looked at that verse in detail. So here in verse 9, we have the opposite of what is occurring in verse 15 of chapter 2. Not the making God out of oneself or one's city or one's idols, but God the Lord, Yahweh, is to be invoked. All right, so the name here is an important idea. And then that phrase, shoulder to shoulder, or literally, the daughter, I'm sorry, uh, the daughter of the dispersed. One shoulder in Hebrew, so that we are emphasizing the opposite of what God has threatened to do, namely to disperse or scatter these nations from before his face. Now, you actually see that word dispersed in verse 10, which in the Hebrew is putz. And I've placed that Hebrew word there on your outline. The language and imagery then of this verse with the word lips or tongues to call on the name or to use the phrase name to stand together in harmony and unity shoulder to shoulder means not to be scattered or dispersed as verse 10 points out. And this language and these images have then been considered in a redemptive historical paradigm. Randy, yes. Verse, that term shoulder to shoulder, what verse is it? Verse 9. In the New American Standard, it's translated shoulder to shoulder, and you see the margin that says with one shoulder. Literally, the Hebrew is one shoulder, which means that they'd be shoulder to shoulder as one. Do you see where we are? Yeah, my verse doesn't do a very good job. It just says, conserve him with one accord. I guess that's the same. Yeah, that's a paraphrase of, of what the Hebrew is saying. But the literal, the literal translation here gives you that contrast to the very next verse where it talks about dispersion or being scattered. And it's the vocabulary here, namely the word for tongues, shapa, and the word for scattered or dispersed, putz, and the word for name, shem, in Hebrew, which sets up an investigation of a redemptive historical motif. Well, where would you find 
this kind of imagery? Where would you find this kind of language in a redemptive historical occurrence where the name is emphasized, where the tongue is emphasized, where the scattering or dispersing is emphasized. In the New Testament. In the New Testament, thinking of what, Ben? The dispersion of the, and the persecution again uh, in Jerusalem, the dispersion of the people to the nations. Well, obviously I'm pointing to these Hebrew words as referring to something. Terry? Yes, good for you. Tower of Babel. All right, let's keep our finger here. and Let's go back to Genesis 11 for a moment. Now, in the first verse of Genesis 11, which is the account of the building of the Tower of Babel, we are told that the whole earth used the same language. What's the Hebrew word for language? Saha, the very same word that is used here in Zephaniah 3. Lips, tongue, very same word. All right, now, those who use the same language are unified, aren't they? They're one shoulder, aren't they? They're shoulder to shoulder in building this tower, aren't they? And what does God do to them? Or what do they not want to have happen to them? Verse 4. Be dispersed or scattered. Poots, the very same word that Zephaniah uses here in verse 10. The opposite of being shoulder to shoulder. And also in that fourth verse, and scattered also appears in verses 8 and 9, where the Lord does scatter them. He pootses them. Also in verse 4, What do they aspire to do? Genesis 11. They make a name, a shem for themselves. So a number of commentators have observed that Zephaniah is working off of the Tower of Babel imagery here. And that argument is fairly strong from the Hebrew vocabulary that appears in these two verses. Now, if that be the case, and I'm only communicating to you the case that has been made, I'm intrigued by this. I'm not completely persuaded by it. But let's consider what, if that paradigm is correct, let's consider what it may be suggesting. And let's do that by looking at another passage in the prophets. Joel chapter 2, verse 32. Joel chapter 2, 
verse 32. And when you have it, go ahead and read it out. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Notice, they call on the name of the Lord. Zephaniah 3.9, they will call on the name of the Lord. And then over to the book of Acts, following up on Ben's suggestion that there's a New Testament angle here. Acts chapter 2, verse 21 And when we turn to Acts chapter 2, what chapter? What are we reading about in Acts chapter 2? Go ahead, Mark. Pentecost. Pentecost. And what happens on Pentecost? The outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the apostles and upon the disciples in the upper room. So, Acts chapter 2, verse 21. Calls on the name of the Lord and salvation. So this phrase, which occurs in Joel probably for the first time, prophetically, is picked up by Zephaniah and projected with respect to not Jerusalem and Zion, as Joel indicates, but projected for the nations. And Peter quotes that passage in his sermon at Pentecost there, when he has Jews from all the nations gathered in that upper room, correct. And they are going to go bear witness to all the nations, Gentile and heathen nations. So Zephaniah is folded in to this reverse Power of Babel paradigm. For Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, is the obverse. It is the reverse of Babel. It is the community that calls on the name of the Lord that speaks one tongue, one language. It is a language that they all understand. It is the language of the glory of the God who saves them. They hear everyone in their own tongue. One language, shoulder to shoulder, binding them together as a community that calls upon the name of the Lord in the last days. They are no longer the scattered and dispersed, the off-scouring the world. They are gathered into the community of the, of the blessed of the Most High. They are reversing Babel's arrogance and sin by humbly bowing before the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and taking his name on their lips and praising him by the outpouring of his blessed Holy Spirit so that they will be one body, one in worship, one in devotion, one in holiness, one in salvation and redemption, and one in mission to the ends of the earth. Now, if there is real force to the language of Zephaniah, 
then he is anticipating that reversal of Babel and projecting it into the prophetic and eschatological future. The accomplishment of that is in Acts chapter 2, regardless of whether Zebaniah is doing this or not. Acts chapter 2 is the other side of Genesis chapter 11. That is clear. No argument about that. If you don't see that relationship, you're not looking at the text properly. If you don't see Acts 2 in relation to Genesis 11, you're not looking at the text properly. If you don't see Genesis 11 in relationship to Acts chapter 2, you're not looking at the text properly. That's the reason God did that. He reversed Babel with an upper room at Pentecost in Jerusalem. He turned it around. He turned it back to a community of one sacred tongue, one holy aim, one saving grace. He did it to display his glory and to turn back the arrogance and pride and the insufferable blasphemy of heathen, pagan, unbelieving mankind. We will make a name for ourselves. We will build a tower all the way up to God. We will unseat God. We will take God off his throne and put ourselves on that throne. And God said, I will reverse your arrogance. I will humble you. I will confuse your tongues. I will scatter and disperse you. Until the day when I will regather you in and through my son and his Holy Spirit. All right. Is Zephaniah on the prophetic cusp of this trans-redemptive historical reversal? Is he? It is delicious, isn't it? It is very inviting, isn't it? And yet, and yet, it may be nothing more than the use of the same vocabulary without the specific imagery. So I won't push it too much, though in a year I may be absolutely persuaded, but for the time being, I share with you the observations of some commentators and others, and I reinforce it with the fact that there looks to be a pattern here a pattern of duplicate language. But regardless of whether Zephaniah has the Tower of Babel in his purview, Acts chapter 2 certainly has it in purview. Any questions or comments? All right, now on to verse 10. We're back to Zephaniah 3. These people who call on the name of the Lord. These people who will have purified lips. That is, their lips will be cleansed, cleansed of iniquity. You can't call on the name of the Lord without clean lips. Without a clean heart. So, your lips and heart are cleansed. You call on the name of the Lord. You stand as one shoulder to shoulder with those like-minded. Peter goes on to use Joel's comment about those who do so shall be saved in that day. And then in verse 10, 
from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia. The rivers of Ethiopia. All right, now in the Hebrew, the word here for Ethiopia is actually art. Kush. Kush. And Kush is the region south of Egypt in the ancient world, which is probably interrupted by Nubia. You remember when we talked about this when we were discussing Ethiopia in chapter 2, verse 12, we gave you a map of North Africa, Eastern Africa, and we indicated that Kush was further south of Egypt, but in between Kush and Egypt was another ancient territory. Does anyone remember what that territory was that was in between? Nubia in modern-day Sudan. All right, so the rivers of Ethiopia, rivers of Kush, south of the Sudan. What are the rivers of Ethiopia? What are the rivers of Kush? Thinking that Kush would extend all the way from the uh, Indian Ocean on the east coast of Africa all the way across into Central Africa. In that literal uh, latitude which is parallel to Ethiopia. So where would the rivers, what would be the rivers of Kush? What would be the rivers of Ethiopia? Come on, you fans of David Livingston, go ahead. Headwaters of the Nile. Headwaters of the Nile, exactly. And how many streams are there to the Nile? There are two. Just by how many streams are there to the Ohio River? You don't know? You Northwesterners. Ma- Monongahela is one. Monongahela, which comes from the south. The Allegheny. And the Allegheny, which comes from the north, and they meet at? The at the point in Pittsburgh and form? The mighty Ohio River. Exactly. All right. All right. So. They took the Eastern Herd to solve that. It took a native western Pennsylvanian. Okay. Erie, Erie Canal is in New York. All right. All right, so two, two mighty rivers that form the Nile. And what do we call them? It's not the Allegheny and Monongahela. Are they the white and the blue? Very good. The white Nile and the blue Nile. All right, so where does the white Nile arise, and why is it called the white Nile? That's the one from Lake Victoria. Where is Lake Victoria? Uganda. It's in Uganda and? I want to say that it's on or near Kilimanjaro. Mm, I can't answer that. I don't know that well enough. It's near Tanzania. Okay, Uganda and Tanzania. Some of you may remember that our OP missionary doctor, Jim Knox, actually journeyed down to Lake Victoria to see that. Uh, I think it was a year ago or so. Okay, so the White Nile originates in Lake Victoria and flows north. These are rivers flowing north. (laughs) 
Not flowing south, flowing north. Okay, and why is he called the White Nile? Because it's full of white water. You do any white water rafting? Not me, but my daughter does. Anyway, okay. All right, so it's water which is extremely churned up, so it's it's got uh, white tops on it as it uh, runs down uh, its course. <clears throat> All right, so what's the, uh, where's the Blue Nile originate? Why is it called the Blue Nile? Water is blue. Water blue? Why do we call the Blue Danube blue? Or why do they call the Blue Danube blue? <laughs> I've never seen it. I've seen pictures of it. It's a beautiful waltz. Music. Yeah, beautiful Strauss waltz. For all you waltzers. My wife keeps trying to teach me how to waltz. I, I'm impossible. Um, okay. It's because of the reflection of the sky. It's caught on the water. Because the waters are calm enough to bear that reflection. So the Blue Nile picks up the reflection of the sky and is much quieter than the White Nile. <clears throat> and they come together where? In Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania? No. No. They come together in Egypt? In Khartoum, yes. And where is Khartoum? Ethiopia? No. Sudan? In the Sudan, yes. Kitchener at Khartoum. Battle of Khartoum, 19th century. Very famous British victory. All right, so... The Blue Nile originates, we didn't say where it originated. We did the White Nile originating in uh, Uganda and, and Tanzania. Where did the Blue Nile originate? Ethiopia. It's in Ethiopia. It actually originates in Ethiopia, exactly. All right, so the rivers of Ethiopia are the White Nile and the Blue Nile. Now, this verse is going to reverse... Chapter 2, verse 12. How? In chapter 2, verse 12, God is going to do what? He's going to slay Ethiopia. He's going to judge and destroy Ethiopia. What's he going to do in chapter 3, verse 10? He's going to gather them to worship him. He's going to gather them to call on his name. He's going to gather them to purify their lips. And they will bring offerings to him. All right, so this reverse mirror, this reverse paradigm of Ethiopia in chapter 2 being destroyed, Ethiopia in chapter 3 being redeemed, or at least those out of it being redeemed. But why eat? Go ahead, Randy. Are both the white and the blue flow north? Yes, they both flow north. Flow north. Only rivers in the world that do that. Yes, as far as I know. But, you know, there may be others that do that. But that's usually the, the, the famous opposite to rivers flowing south and so on. That you, uh, But actually, the, the Ohio River flows north for a little ways. <clears throat> and when it goes out of Pittsburgh, it flows north for about 20 miles. <clears throat> Turns south at Beaver, Pennsylvania. You've got to learn a little bit of geography of western Pennsylvania. Okay. 
<clears throat> All right, now why this nation? Why Ethiopia? <clears throat> here, he's, here he's talking about the nations he's going to judge, and we've seen from chapter 2 that we can name some of those. But here he's talking about the nation he's going to redeem. And he names Kush or Ethiopia. Why? Why this one? Art? Okay, let's have your possibility. One is it's not Judah, so it's a Gentile nation. The other one, maybe you're going to like this one better, it's a, I think you encourage us to think of Ethiopia as kind of the far ends of the earth. Yes, now that's much better than your first suggestion. <clears throat> From Earth's remotest regions, and Ethiopia is at the remotest end of the earth, so it's indication of that endless boundary of the nations, okay, which God is going to extend his grace towards. So, Ethiopia is used as that image of one of the remotest kingdoms of the world, far into deepest Africa. And if God is going to redeem those dispersed ones out of that one, then, of course, he's going to redeem them from the other remote regions of the world. Yes, Mary? Where are you going with that? The idea is they almost typify all of us who are under God's curse. And so God was going to bring those under his curse into his grace. Um, well, it is true he's going to bring those in the nations under his curse <coughs> into his grace. But I'm, I'm not so, so sure that fits specifically with Kush or Ethiopia. You'll have to persuade me uh, in, in a more persuasive way. Persuade me more persuasively. <laughs> yes, Ben. It seems it's an interesting thought that I had to myself. That you know, there's a scripture, can the Ethiopians uh, change their skin? Yeah, here he's bringing the Ethiopians. That, that's, that's good. Yes, he is going to change their skins by his wonderful grace, isn't he? And if you look at Isaiah 19, and I've listed those verses there, 19 to 25, you have this marvelous uh, Isianic prophecy of the change in Ethiopia. And also in Isaiah, he folds Assyria into that paradigm of that change of salvation, bringing them into uh, the uh, grace of the Lord. All right, now, uh, let's step back for a moment and try to uh, sum up the whole of uh, what we've observed here. <clears throat> Zephaniah is doing something which is quite remarkable here, but quite simple. He is drawing the world of nations, and he is drawing Judah, the nation, into his own eschatological invitation and prophetic proclamation. There is no need, then, to literalize Jerusalem and Judah by this language. This prophetic language from Zephaniah, and I would argue from all the Old Testament prophets, does not need to literalize Judah and Jerusalem as premillennialists do. 
is not what the prophet is doing. It's not what God is doing through the prophet. Nor is there any need to literalize the world and the nations of the earth. There is no need to literalize the nations of the world or all of the earth in post-millennial fashion. That is not what Zephaniah is doing with his language. That's not what any of the Old Testament prophets are doing with their language. This language is transcendently eschatological. It is not temporally premillennial. It is not earthly postmillennial. It is transcendently eschatological. The nations are drawn into the grace of God and his eternal cosmos, his eternal cosmos. Jerusalem is drawn into the grace of God and his eternal metropolis, his eternal metropolis. The narrative space, then, of this fulfillment, the narrative space of Zephaniah's fulfillment is not earthly. It is heavenly. Zephaniah is not talking about earthly fulfillment. He is talking about imagery which can only be accomplished in heaven. Nor is the time aspect of this narrative fulfilled in the temporal. There is no temporal era. There is no temporal envelope. There is no time in which this imagery could be fulfilled and accomplished. The only dimension in which this imagery could be accomplished is eternity. Zephaniah is drawing not only Judah, but the nations into a heavenly community, into an eternal reality, into God's own living room. And he is doing the same thing with Jerusalem and Zion and Nineveh and the cities of Ashkelon, Gaza, etc. He is bringing, bringing those of his own elect out of all the nations of the earth and sitting them in heavenly places in Christ Jesus in a time in which there is no time, in a dimension which is without end, in a timeless arena of absolute, never-ending eternity and face-to-face visio dei, vision of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If you bring this language down to the earth, if you bring this language down to time as we understand it, then you do not understand 
prophetic idiom. No wonder I've been so confused all these years. It is confusing until you see the light, the amillennial light. But you understand, the prophets are not talking in these images for the purpose of literalizing the earthly or temporal aspect of them. They are using the imagery of their own time and era in order to project eternity and that which lies outside of time and space in the riches of the abundance of the kingdom of heaven, which stands now and has stood from eternity time present and will stand to eternity time future. The only way that they can project that imagery is to use the language of their own time, to accommodate their language. God, the Holy Spirit, inspiring them to accommodate their language to the imagery of their own time, but then to eschatologize that language, to project it into the eternal and everlasting dimension and arena. It is therefore a fundamentally fatal mistake to look for a world which becomes completely Christianized. That is not what this language is projecting. As much as a fatal mistake to look for a Jerusalem which is Judaized again with a temple, with millennial priests, with sacrifices at that temple, that is virtual blasphemy with the Lamb of God sitting on the other side of the street, on the down, down, the, down the road from the temple? What on earth? Those do not compute. He is the last temple. He's the end of the temple, John chapter 2. He's the only temple you need. Why would you want to go to a millennial temple where they're sacrificing animals while Jesus is sitting down the street with a rod of iron? Why would you want that? Rubbish. None of the prophetic language can be forced into that literalistic mold. It's a failure to understand prophetic idiom. As Voss points out over and over and over again in his writings, neither the premillennial nor the postmillennial eschatology can satisfy the eternity feature of the prophetic language. They cannot satisfy the eternity feature the forever feature, the never-ending feature. And that's what the prophets are talking about. They're talking about a never-ending dimension, a never-ending dimension of worship, a never-ending dimension of not being scattered, a never-ending dimension of having purified lips, a never-ending dimension of calling on the name of the Lord, a never-ending dimension of bringing offerings unto the Lord. You can't do that in an earthly post-millennial glory age any more than you can do it in an earthly premillennial thousand-year age. It just does not compute. And so, Zephaniah draws you into the marvelous imagery of what is in prospect for the elect out of the nations, the kingdoms, those uh, on, outside of Jerusalem in his own day, as, as he draws 
the uh, children of Judah, the remnant of Judah, as he'll call them in this uh, third chapter. He's already called them that in chapter 2. The remnant of Judah, as he calls them, into that same transcendent, unending, glorious, face-to-face vision of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, forever and ever and ever. And you can put a staccato amen to that, because that is glory. That is glory. Now, a footnote. I will respect the premillennial believer, as I will respect the postmillennial believer. But I will beg both of them to come up a little higher. And I don't say that arrogantly. I say that humbly, because Voss has taught me. Voss has taught me what Paul taught him and what the whole Bible, particularly the prophets, taught him.